Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Hello, Plainfield Christian Church. My name is Matt Proctor. I'm the president of Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri. And more importantly, I am Luke's dad. And I'm honored to be here with you. If you have your Bibles, grab them and open them up to Revelation 21. We're going to conclude our series through Revelation. Revelation 21, we'll look at that text together here in just a moment. I love McDonald's. Now, I'm the oldest of three boys, and when I was growing up every Saturday morning, my dad would take one of us three boys to breakfast at McDonald's. So I grew up with very warm memories of the Golden Arches. And when I first met my wife, Katie, for our first date, December 8th, 1989, I took her to go see a movie. The Little Mermaid was playing in the theaters, and then I took her to McDonald's for some ice cream. And for the next year of our courtship, Katie would tell you that I didn't take her anywhere except McDonald's. First, I was a poor college kid, and second, I just wanted to share the goodness. I love McDonald's. Now, on the one-year anniversary of our first date, I I took Katie back to that same McDonald's, and she went up to the counter. She ordered her Diet Coke, and the McDonald's guy reached out, uh, and from underneath the counter, he brought this great big vase of red roses. Uh, They were from me, not the McDonald's guy. And then I took Katie back to that booth where we'd had our first date, and I got down on my knee, and I proposed to my wife at McDonald's. Yes, I am a hopeless romantic. We got married. We moved to Carbondale, Illinois. We bought a house three blocks from McDonald's. McDonald's has been an important part of our family's life. So you can understand why when my kids were little, they developed a love for McDonald's. When Luke was nine, he was actually eating with me in the cafeteria at the college where I work. And when we were done walking back to my office, he said, dad, dad, don't you wish they would build a McDonald's here on campus? And at that moment, I was so overcome with pride and joy. The Bible says, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when my kids were little, whenever we would go to McDonald's, they always wanted to order the same thing. Did your kids ever do this? Every trip to McDonald's, they wanted that package that somebody, in a moment of marketing genius, called a Happy Meal. Because you're not just buying chicken nuggets and fries and a little 50-cent toy. Oh, no. You are buying happiness. There's an author named John Orberg who writes about Happy Meals, and he says this. He says, you know that McDonald's inflates the price of those Happy Meals far beyond the value of that toy. He said, I try to buy my kids off sometimes. I tell them just to order food off the dollar menu, and I'll give them 50 cents to go buy a toy on their own. But no, the cry goes up, I want a Happy Meal. All over the restaurant, parents are craning their necks to see who is this tight-fisted, penny-pinching, cheapskate of a parent who would deny a child the meal of great joy. And so I buy each child his own. And they are happy for about a minute and 30 seconds. And then he writes this. He says, the problem with Happy Meals is that the happy always wears off. Now that's just true. No child ever discovered lasting happiness at McDonald's. When the excitement of the Happy Meal wears off, they need a new fix. You'd think after a while the kids would catch on, but they don't. They keep buying them and they keep not working. And the problem with Happy Meals is that the happy always wears off. Now, of course, only a child would be so naive, right? Only a child would be foolish enough to believe that happiness is a thing that could be bought. Or maybe when we get older, we don't get any smarter. Maybe our happy meals just get more expensive. Because let's face it, ever since the curse, Genesis 3, the human race has been haunted by the hunger 
And you know what I'm talking about. That dissatisfaction, that discontentment, vague disappointment. We all have this nagging feeling that something is missing. And we try to fill that void with, with all sorts of things. Uh, work, hobbies, family, achievement, beauty, cars, relationship, food, sex, money. The, the happy meals are all different, but the hunger is universal. We're all looking for something. And here's the problem. Even when we find what we're looking for, it doesn't satisfy. Now, we all feel disappointment in life when things go wrong, when a marriage breaks up or cancer strikes or your pipes burst or the job promotion falls through. We all feel disappointment when things go wrong. But I'm talking about disappointment when things go right, when the marriage is good and you get the job and you refurnish the house and it looks great. And yet somewhere in the early morning hours, as you lie awake in the dark, you are haunted by the feeling that it isn't enough. Troy Aikman is a Hall of Fame quarterback, and when he won his first Super Bowl with the Dallas Cowboys, instead of going off with his teammates to celebrate, uh, instead he went up to his hotel room by himself, ordered a beer from room service, and he sat alone on his hotel bed. Later, he told a reporter, he said, I just kept thinking back to when I was a teenager, how I thought life's problems would be solved when I turned 16 and got a car. Then I would be happy, but I wasn't. And here I was at the top of professional football, Super Bowl champion, and all I found myself thinking was, now what? Now what? Alexander the Great conquered the known world, and when he found out there were no more nations to conquer, he sat down and wept. Mark Buchanan is a Christian author, and when he held in his hand his first published book, 20 years of dreaming, eight years of writing and prayers and knocking on publishers' doors, when he held that book in his hand, he said, it wasn't enough. It didn't answer all my longings. He said, it didn't quell all my insecurities. It didn't fulfill me. And listen, if you live long enough, you will discover this whole world is overrated. It is rigged for disappointment. It will always give you stones for bread. When we get what we want, it's never enough. Satisfaction never lasts. Even our joys are tinged with sadness. Solomon was the, was the man who literally had everything. And yet he wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, a, a chasing after the wind. He knew better than anyone that the problem with Happy Meals is that the happy always wears off. So the question is, well, what would satisfy the hunger? C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. And if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. In other words, this world isn't meant to satisfy that hunger. It's meant to whet our appetite. This, that is, this satisfaction that we feel with this world, that's not a design flaw. That is a designed flaw. God has wired discontent into the system so that we would never lose our hunger for something that is greater and deeper than this world. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. What we hunger for is heaven. Now, confession time. When I was younger, I wasn't really sure that heaven was what I wanted. I heard the story of a preacher. One time he was preaching on heaven during his sermon. At one point, the preacher said, if, if you want to go to heaven, stand up. And the entire congregation stood up, except for one little boy right down here on the front row. And the, the preacher was perplexed. He looked over the pulpit and he said, son, he said, do you mean to tell me that when you die, you don't want to go to heaven? 
And the little boy said, oh, well, sure, when I die, preacher. He said, I thought you were getting a group up to go right now. <laughs> when I was a kid, that's how I felt. I wasn't really sure I wanted to go because heaven didn't sound that exciting. Because here was my mental picture of heaven. You die and, and you go through the pearly gates and then they give you a harp and they give you a hymn book. You join the heavenly choir. The heavenly choir director says, okay, everybody open your hymn books to hymn number one. We're going to sing all four verses, no skipping the third verse. And when we get to the end of the hymn book, we're going to start back at hymn number one and sing all the way through again. And heaven sounded like a church service gone really, really long. That did not sound exciting. And you know that in Revelation, the apostle John taught us to pray, come Lord Jesus. But my prayer as a kid was, come Lord Jesus, just not yet. You see, when I was young, I had so much left to do. I mean, there were books I hadn't read. There were mountains I hadn't climbed. There were, there were whole seasons of Gilligan's Island I had never watched. <laughs> I wanted to get married and start a family and live life and have adventures. And then, sure, fine, okay, then I'll go to heaven. Come, Lord Jesus, just not yet. My heart was still attached to this world. But I'm older now. And the longer you live, the more pain you see. Cancer, car wrecks, COVID, divorces, Child abuse, broken families, wars, famines, political upheaval, hate. Just three weeks ago, a dear friend of ours lost her husband in a tragic car wreck. He was 40 years old, left behind three school-age children. And the more funerals that you attend, the more widows and fatherless children you see, the more you realize this world is not my home. And it drives me to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. You see, you have been in this series through the book of Revelation called A Clearer Vision of the Future. And in these last two chapters of the book of Revelation, I finally find the future I long for. And suddenly I realize as I read that heaven, heaven is what I want. Heaven is what I hunger for. Heaven is my heart's true home. Would you read with me? Let's see if that's true for you. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1, says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Revelation chapter 22, starting in verse one, John writes this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the, the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Now, you know that in the Bible, this life in heaven is called eternal life. 
But in the Bible, that phrase eternal life doesn't just mean longer life. It means better life. Biblically speaking, eternal life isn't just about a certain quantity of life. It's about a certain quality of life. It's not just our same old earthly existence with the end knocked out of it. It's a whole new higher kind of existence. It is life without the curse. And that's what this text in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is describing. It's painting a picture of that eternal life. And it uses actually three pictures to describe this. May I point them out to you? Here's the first picture. John describes heaven as a paradise, a paradise. And what this pictures is our relationship with creation is redeemed. All through Revelation 21 and 22, there are echoes of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the Garden of Eden. John talks about the tree of life. He, he says there is no curse. This is a picture of Eden restored. It's the world, the way that God intended it to be. By the way, I want you to notice that heaven is actually a very uh, physical place. Uh, sometimes we have this, this crazy idea that in heaven, it's kind of this uh, fuzzy, soft focus, ethereal world. We're going to be these disembodied souls that are floating around like Casper the Friendly Ghost on cloud nine. No, this is a a new heaven and a new earth. It is a very real physical place. Uh, I'll never forget when, when Luke was about six. Um, he and I were standing in the backyard and Luke and I were getting ready to bury his goldfish. Now this was actually the fifth goldfish that Luke had killed. Uh, and so as we stood over Goldie number five in Goldie's little matchbox coffin, ready to bury Goldie, uh, Luke said, he said, dad, he said, will there be animals in heaven? And I had to stop for a minute and, and, and think about that. But as I was thinking, all of a sudden, Luke interrupted my thoughts. He said, oh, dad, dad, wait, wait. He said, I know the answer. I, I remember that, that story in the Bible when Elijah went to heaven and, and the chariot of fire came to get him. And dad, it was pulled by horses of fire. So there are animals in heaven. That is so good. Thanks, dad. I said, uh, you're welcome, son. And then I thought, hey, that's pretty good. I'm going to write that down. I might have to use that sometime. You see, we're going to live in a new heaven and a new earth, a place that does actually have animals and rivers and mountains and trees. There won't be any mosquitoes. Can I get an amen? There won't be any mudslides. There won't be any weeds or drought or cancer or tsunami or tornadoes or covid and we're going to get a new body in this new physical heaven. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, he says, our earthly bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. Paul says that we're going to have physical bodies in heaven, just like we have now, only they're going to be better. They're going to be glorious bodies, he says. And so what would this new improved body actually be like? Can I, can I use my sanctified imagination for just a moment? Think about your sense of taste. We just came through Thanksgiving. The, the human tongue can, can enjoy thousands of flavors with just four kinds of taste buds, salty, sweet, bitter, sour on four different parts of your tongue. Now, do you think God invented four kinds of taste buds because he couldn't think of any more? I don't think so. Now, we know there's going to be food to eat in heaven, wedding banquet of the lamb, and we know that heaven is going to be more, not less, than the life we presently enjoyed. So do you think there could be new flavors in heaven? I think so. You talk about a happy meal. <laughs> and how about your sense of smell? Right now, the, the aroma of warm baking bread or the smell of a rose or chocolate or freshly cut grass on a ball field, all, all those different smells are detected by just seven types of smell receptors in your nose. Now, I don't think God exhausted the possibilities when he invented those seven. In fact, we, we already know God can build a better nose. Just look at the animal kingdom. Your dog smells better than you. 
And you know what I mean by that sentence. And listen, in heaven, we might have all kinds of new smell receptors that will just explode with new, amazing aromas. And that could be true for our hearing, songs we've never heard before. It could be true for, for our sight, colors we've never seen before. You want to know the very best part of these new bodies, the effects of sin, pain, disease, death, no more. Just think of the effects of time on our body. Now, you know, in this world, time is not our friend. With every day that passes, um, cars rust, fruit rots, our, our bodies break down and they wear out. It's the second law of thermodynamics. The universe is running down. Everything tends towards decay. Time is not our friend. Uh, my grandfather was a farmer in Iowa, and, and he could work from sunup to sundown when he was a young man, strong and, and strapping in his day. But as the years went by, he moved more slowly, and his hearing faded, and his eyesight dimmed, and his back weakened, and his body suffered the effects of time. But what if we lived in a paradise, in a world that was unaffected by sin and time? I, I heard a comedian one time who he imagined what life would look like if time worked backward. Listen to what he says. He says, I think the life cycle is all backward. He said, you should die first and just get that out of the way. He said, then you could live 20 years in an old age home where you wake up feeling better every day. And then you get kicked out when you're too young. You go collect your pension, get a gold watch on your first day at work. He said, then you could, uh, you work for 40 years and when you're young enough, you can enjoy your retirement. And then you go to college, you have a great time with your friends until you're ready for high school. Then you could go to grade school, you become a little kid, you play, you have no responsibilities and then you become a little baby. You go back into the womb, spend your last nine months floating peacefully and you finish up as a gleam in somebody's eye. <laughs> and the first time I read that, I laughed out loud, but then I thought to myself, what if? If there is time in eternity, what if it somehow works backwards? Every day is fresher and brighter than the one before. The second law of thermodynamics suddenly gets reversed and everything gets better with time. Fruit gets sweeter, clothes get newer, floors get cleaner. Every morning in the new heavens and the new earth, my grandpa will wake up to go work in those fields that he loved and he will be younger and stronger and healthier than he was the day before. Listen, that's the world I want to live in. That's what my heart hungers for. Heaven is my heart's true home. Heaven is pictured as a paradise, but there's a second picture here in our text. John pictures heaven as a city, a city. And this is picturing our relationship with others as redeemed. Now, when I hear that word city, I need to tell you, I, I grew up in Iowa. I grew up out in the country on a gravel roll, uh, road, a uh, roll route too. I was surrounded by corn. I was a country kid. And so city was not always a warm word for me. Uh, you know, I thought of cities as noisy. They were crowded. They were, you know, dirty, crime, dangerous. I mean, why in the world would heaven be a city? Who wants to go to a city? Shouldn't heaven be kind of more like green pastures? Uh, in fact, one of my all-time favorite movie lines, have you seen Field of Dreams in, in that movie, Field of Dreams? Um, those old-time ball players, they step out of the cornfield and they step out onto that baseball field and they, and they look around and they say, is this heaven? And the answer comes back, no, it's Iowa. <laughs> and I always thought, yes, that's what heaven is supposed to look like. Who wants to go to a city? But, of course, John is wiser than I am, and so are you. You understand that, that Revelation is written with metaphors, with symbols, and, and a city, a city is where people congregate. A city is where people live together. A city is a symbol of community. In fact, this city is a symbol for the community of God. John says in our text that this, this city comes down from heaven dressed as a bride. Oh, we know who the bride is. The bride are the people of God. And this city represents the community of God, the people of God. 
And I want you to notice that it's a beautiful, perfect city, perfect symmetry, and it symbolizes perfect community. Our relationships will finally be healed. All those effects of sin on our relationships will be no more. Steve Brown is a, he's a preacher down in Florida. And uh, he tells about a time that a woman came up to him after he was done preaching. And this lady said to him, she said, you know, I've heard a lot of preachers before say that they were sinners, but you're the first one I ever actually believed. <laughs> well, you can believe me here today when I say I'm a sinner. I too often wake up in the morning and I look in the mirror and I am disappointed because I have not lived up to my own best intentions. I live in Romans 7. You remember Paul's words there? The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. The things I do want to do, it seems I never end up doing those. And, and I am not my best self, but in heaven, I will be redeemed. Free from all contaminants in, in heaven, I will be the Matt Proctor I was always intended to be. And you will be the you that God always intended you to be. And our relationships will be as God wants them. No anger, no guilt, no abuse, no bitterness, no harshness, no gossip or betrayal, no lying, no pride, no shame. I, I love one author's description of what this redeemed community would look like. He said, in the heavenly kingdom, all marriages will be healthy and all children will be safe. In the heavenly kingdom, those who have too much will give to those who have too little. In the heavenly community, Israeli and Palestinian children will play together on the West Bank while their parents build homes for one another. In the heavenly community, in offices and in corporate boardrooms, executives will secretly scheme to help their colleagues succeed. They will compliment each other behind their backs. Tabloids like the National Enquirer will be filled with stories of courage and moral beauty. Talk shows like Jerry Springer will, will feature shocking stories like mothers and daughters who love each other deeply. Disagreements in the heavenly community, disagreements will be settled with grace and with civility. There will still be lawyers, perhaps, but they will have really useful jobs like delivering pizza, which will be non-fat and low in cholesterol. In the heavenly community, doors will have no locks, cars will have no alarms, schools will no longer need police or even hall monitors because students and teachers and janitors will honor and value one another's work. At recess, every kid will get picked for a team. In the heavenly community, churches will never split. People will be neither bored nor hurried. No father will ever say to a disappointed child, I'm too busy. Divorce courts, battered women's shelters... They will be turned into community recreation centers because in the heavenly community, every time one human being touches another, it will be to express encouragement and affection and delight. No one will be lonely. No one will be afraid. People of different races will join hands. They will honor and be enriched by their differences. They will be united in their common humanity. And in the center of this entire community will be its magnificent architect and its most glorious resident, God himself. Listen to me, I'm a country kid, but that's a city I want to live in. That's what my heart hungers for. Heaven is my heart's true home. It's a paradise and it's a city, but there's one more picture that John gives us of heaven and he calls heaven a temple. He pictures it as a temple and the picture there is our relationship with God redeemed. You see, John uses this image of a temple, but you might miss it if you weren't paying attention because in Revelation 21, 22, John actually says, I did not see a temple in the city. But then John gives us a clue what he's getting at. You see, John records for us in Revelation chapter 21, he records for us the dimensions of the city. 
He says that heaven, the city of Jerusalem, is 12,000 stadia long. That's about 1,400 miles long. And he says it's about 1,400 miles high and 1,400 miles wide. In other words, the city is a perfect cube. And there is only one other perfect cube described in all of Scripture. It is the Holy of Holies in Israel's temple. The Holy of Holies was the temple's innermost room where God himself dwelt between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. You remember this. And the Holy of Holies was where you met God. Now, the Holy of Holies, extremely limited access. Only one man, only the high priest could go in there. And even he could only do it on one day a year, the Day of Atonement. God was hard to get to back then, but not in heaven. Because what John is saying is that in heaven, the city itself is the holy of holies. The city itself is the temple. We get to constantly live in the presence of God. He is not hard to get to anymore. And that's the promise of Revelation 21.3. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. In fact, catch me on this. The presence of God is what makes heaven, heaven. In our house, we, we have a plaque that says, home is wherever mom is. And that's true. What makes a home is not the wood or the bricks or the mortar of the house. What makes a home are the people inside. It's who we're with. And what makes heaven home is that we get to be with God. I love the message version of Revelation 21.3 where it says, God has moved into our neighborhood, making his home with us. And that's the best word that describes heaven. Yes, it's a paradise. Yes, it's a city. Yes, it's a temple. But the best word to describe heaven is home. Heaven is your heart's true home. Can I, can I close with this? Um, this picture right here is my wife Katie's heart. Uh, my wife, Katie, uh, grew up in a little village called Irwin, Missouri, population 100. Now, if you were to drive north out of my town, Joplin, on Interstate 49, like you're heading up towards Kansas City, you'd drive about 30 minutes north, and you'd hit a little town called Lamar. And seven miles north of Lamar, you'd see, off to the east, Highway C. Now, if you were to turn east on Highway C, you'd, you'd drive about a half a mile over the railroad tracks right here, and you'd see off to your left a big white hay barn. And you turn in left there at the hay barn, and you are at Bunton Farms. My wife grew up in a big farming clan. This, this farm has been in her family for almost 70 years. Her three older brothers farm it now. And this picture um, hangs in our bedroom. Maybe you've seen these aerial shots of the old homestead before. And Katie's mom is the one that gave her this picture. Now, her name is Ruth. We all call her Granny, Granny Ruth. And Granny Ruth uh, was a faithful journaler. She kept a daily journal all of her life. And so when she gave Katie this picture, she actually put right down here in the corner a little note. And it was recording from her journal what was happening on the day this picture was taken. Can I read you the note? It says this, it's not art, but it's home. To Button Farms Incorporated, Irwin, Missouri, and to the Irwin 4-H Club. All six of my kids went through the Irwin 4-H Club. Seven miles north of Lamar, Missouri, August 10th, 1983. So Katie would have been about 13, 14 years old when this picture was taken. The camera didn't catch, but my journal shows that on this day, Katie was bringing the rakes in at the end of haying. Mike and Matt, those are two of her older brothers, were taking a bail wagon load of hay to a hay customer. 
And Marty, that's her oldest brother, was on a three-wheeler checking irrigation pipe. And the Button Reunion Company, the Button Reunion is always in August, the Button Reunion Company was, was staying overnight. And Don, that's Katie's dad, Don was actually inside visiting with them instead of outside working, wrote Granny Ruth in surprise. And then she wrote, and Ruth, and that's Granny, was picking blackberries beyond the oaks. And it was hot that day. Now, when I look at this picture, when my wife, Katie, looks at this picture, I, I couldn't begin to tell you how many family dinners we have eaten right underneath that roof. And how many family baseball games we have played right there in that front yard. How, how many arguments her brothers have had in that driveway right there. And when Katie looks at this picture, there are more memories here than she could stay, shake a stick at. This is her favorite place in the world. And her roots run so deep in this ground that her veins flow with Barton County dirt. It's not art, but it's home. Now, this was a few years ago. Um, Katie and I decided to take our, our kids, our six kids, on what I'm going to call an epic vacation. We had never gone to go see uh, the Western United States, and so Katie and I loaded our six children up into our family vehicle. It's a, a big white 15-passenger van, looks like a church van, and, and the eight of us lived out of that van for the next 24 days. We drove 7,000 miles. We covered 14 states. We hit eight national parks. It was an epic vacation. And can I tell you just some of the amazing things that we got to see on this vacation? Breathtaking sights. We, we stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon and, and we just marveled. Have you ever been there? We, we marveled at the Indian cliff ruins at Montezuma's Castle and we watched the sun set on the red rocks of Sedona, Arizona. We ran in the surf at the Pacific Ocean. We, we took all of our kids to Disneyland. I spent the longest week of my life there that day. But at the end of the day, when those fireworks were exploding over Disney's castle and my kids' eyes were as wide as saucers, it was all worth it. We went to the Hollywood sign and to Grauman's Chinese Theater to see the stars on the sidewalk. We walked across the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. We went to Pier 39 at Fisherman's Wharf to watch the sea lions. We watched those cable cars go up and down the hill. We whitewater rafted Kings Canyon, the Smith River, the Merced River. We rafted Yosemite National Park. We climbed to the top of Yosemite Falls and we watched the moon rise over Half Dome. Wow. We saw the mighty sequoias. We, we went camping in the redwoods. You talk about a magical forest. My kids and I, we went, to, we went hiking and we played hide and seek in, in stumps that were literally as big as houses. We saw the deepest lake, the clearest blue water you'll ever see in the world at Crater Lake in Oregon. And we explored lighthouses on the Oregon coast. We saw a pod of whales playing out in the ocean. We waded in the tide pools on the shore and we looked at mussels and anemone and starfish. We camped in Yellowstone and we watched Old Faithful explode and we saw a bear and moose and elk and buffalo. We climbed to the bridge across Multnomah Falls in the Columbia River Gorge. And we watched a rodeo in Cody, in Cody Wyoming. In, uh, in, South Dakota, in South Dakota, we were surrounded by 50,000 bikers in black leather <laughs> that were there for the Sturgis Rally. And then my kids and I stood and we marveled at those faces carved into Mount Rushmore. And I am telling you what, we, we saw some of the most amazing sights you will ever see. Breathtaking beauty after breathtaking beauty. But do you know the most beautiful place that we saw on our trip? The most beautiful sight that we saw was actually near the end of our journey, at the end of those 7,000 miles, 
we turned south of Kansas City and we were driving on Interstate 49 when about seven miles north of Lamar, Missouri, we saw off to the east, Highway C. And we turned east there and we drove about a half a mile over the railroad tracks and we turned in right there at that great big white hay barn. And as soon as we pulled in that driveway, Granny herself came walking out that front door and down those front steps and she greeted us there in the driveway, big smile on her face, embraces all around. We hadn't seen her for 24 days and she invited us in for supper. And in that moment, I am telling you what, that my wife's soul breathed a sigh of relief and she wept tears of joy because it's not art, but it's home. And listen to me, church, you know that a day is coming at the end of our long journey when we will pull in the driveway of the celestial city, the new Jerusalem. And coming down out of that front door, right down those front steps to greet us will be Jesus himself. And he will embrace us, big smile on his face, well done, good and faithful servant. And he will invite us in for supper, the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And we will sit at that table with Jesus and we will eat and we will talk and we will sing and we will laugh with the ones that we have loved and with the one that we love until the joy pierces our heart like a sword. And that delight will never wear off. That will be the meal of great joy. That will be the happiest meal of all because we will be home. Oh, Father God, we thank you for the amazing hope of heaven. Father, keep us faithful until that day when we are home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.